is Angela, and this is the Homestead Education Podcast, where we talk all things homesteading, and we want to share our passion and experience for this lifestyle with you. Hi, you all. Welcome back. It's been a very long time. This is Mandy and Angela. Hello, hello. And hello. Um... It's been, gosh, what a whirlwind. It's been a busy season. Summer is over. Fall is here. And we're back. And it feels really good. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm good. Should we tell everyone our news about school? Oh, yeah. That's a good idea. So uh, The Sustainable Homestead, my book is coming out in March. And I'm largely self-taught. I've done a few online courses but I really sort of wanted to find something that was going to help me close my gaps in what I've learned. And so I've been researching, um, you know, accredited schools and whether or not they offer a permaculture course. Well, I found one through Cornell and it's an online course. Honestly, anyone can take it. Anyone can sign up. You don't have to be accepted into Cornell. It's just offered through Cornell, if that makes sense. And so I was really excited. And I told Mandy I'd signed up for this course. And she said, well, do you mind if I join you? And I was like, of course you can join me. You should absolutely join me because then I have a study partner and I don't have to partner up with a stranger. And so we're in school and we started a couple weeks ago. It is a six week long course. Then there's a break. Then there's a second course. Then there's a break. And then there's a third. And hopefully by the end, after we submit all of our, I guess, work or permaculture design portfolio or whatever we end up with, our final product, we can take it to uh, the the Finger Lakes Permaculture Institute and get certified. And we will be internationally recognized permaculture practitioners, which is very exciting because we're, well, I feel I'm literally now putting my money where my mouth is. I'm not just practicing it, but I'm paying to get the education so people know that I'm legit, right? Yeah. We were talking about it before we started recording. It's actually, I mean, it's, we just started like Angela said, but it's been very interesting and I think it's going to be largely beneficial. I mean, I try to compare it to when I took all of my master gardener stuff. Um, and it's different. I think it's, it's, it's a little bit more in depth, obviously a little bit more like direct, um, in, in talking about permaculture and not just like a large aspect of gardening or, you know, managing your, your hedgerows or whatever it is. It's very, um, I don't know. It's just like, it's very in depth and very in tune and it's been awesome. Yeah. We've had a lot of good conversations and perhaps at some point we could even develop some episode topics based on some of the discussion points that we've had to answer so far. Like, the thing about permaculture is it's not just trying to mimic patterns in mother nature when it comes to growing food or raising animals. It's also kind of this ethically based practice, right? It, yes, we're trying to be restorative and regenerative and natural, but it has a lot to do with caring for the earth as a value and caring for people. And then at the same time, sharing your knowledge and sharing your surplus. So it's definitely a practice founded in ethics, which is kind of the point that we're talking about right now. And I think that that's probably its own podcast show, but it's super interesting. And uh, I don't know. I'm excited about it. I think that's the part that people don't know. I'm not sure that the overall, like the overreaching 
foundation of permaculture is widely understood, honestly. I mean, I think that a lot of people, you know, if we use the example of homesteaders, farmers, you know, specifically probably folks that just like smaller homestead, Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people do pockets of permaculture or, you know, they start with like a very basic companion planting style type of like, um, gardening, you know, or what is best here? How can this benefit this? Um, but like you said, the ethics and, and everything, I don't think a lot of people widely understand that. And so that's been honestly interesting for me to kind of dive a little bit deeper into as well. Yeah, I think when we look at other things like regenerative agriculture, it's usually about starting with a to- soil test, right? And then figuring out how to restore land and replace those lost nutrients and continue to have them naturally reoccur, replenish themselves. And so you have this data and you have this measurement tool, but there's not really an ethical component to it. It's more just about, I want to restore this, whatever your personal motivations may be. Mm-hmm. But the entire foundation of the permaculture movement is not just the how it's largely the why Mm -hmm. dictate your decisions about the how and the whole idea is if I take care of my land my land can take care of my family it can take care of my neighbors and then I have a responsibility to share that surplus with like the food pantry or share my knowledge and teach people. And so it kind of creates this really, truly a movement. And I get it. Sometimes it sounds a little cult-like um, or religious almost, but it, it's just a really neat practice. Just kind of bringing people together that want to raise animals and foster land and grow vegetables in a way that's not harmful to the environment. And that's really just about the betterment of humanity, right? Yeah. I was just going to say, it just, it just kind of brings people together that just want to improve, period. Like you, you get in the sentence there, just improve in general, improve, yeah. improve your land, improve your animal practice, improve yourself, like all of those things. So mm-hmm. it, um, yeah, it's really been, it's really been fun. So probably more to come there, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, believe it or not, today's episode is not about permaculture. <laughs> Although we could probably circle most things we ever talk about back. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> yeah. We're actually here to talk about garlic today. Believe it or not, this is the time to start thinking about planting your garlic. I think there's kind of a common misconception that you would do it August, mm-hmm. September. And like anything else, it's growing zone dependent. So maybe if you're in Canada, zones three, zones even maybe four A. You might have done it already. Mm-hmm. But there's a reason we wait, wait until about now for the remaining growing zones. We're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about sort of our tried and true methods. Yeah. Um, we have not planted our garlic yet, which I know you and I were kind of talking about it a couple of days ago. Um, we're zone six, literally teetering on the line A or B, um, honestly, like by a county. So it's, or both. I mean, a lot of times I just say zone six. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know there's microclimates and all those things, so, but oh yeah, yeah. I'm not going to get super deep into that. But right now, our high today is almost eighty, so it is very zone dependent when you're going to start or plant your garlic and things like that. But it's going to vary. I mean, if, again, not going to get into it, but 
the weather's changing. Um, and so <laughs> typically we, um, have planted our garlic around Halloween. Well, it's November, what, 2nd? Mm-hmm. Around Halloween. Um, but when we look out at our 10 day forecast, it, it never gets, it's never getting below freezing. It's never getting below like middle forties at night. Have you yet? Uh, yeah, we, yeah, we had a two day span where it got down to about 18 degrees. So it killed everything. Yeah. Right. Everything. Yeah. Um, But now we're back into the eighties. So that's, I mean, that's Midwest weather for you, but it's, I mean, the extremes that we are starting to see are a little bit more extreme, I would say, um, year after year. So, but you know, when trying to figure out about planting garlic, one thing I do is I go through photos on my phone mm-hmm. because it helps me to kind of see like what was happening in the garden at this time last year. Cause it, it can be very hard to remember. Oh yeah. And even though I say I'm going to keep like a journal, I don't. And so I had found that on it was like the end of November last year, I was still harvesting tomatoes. And the year before that, I was still getting tomatoes in December. The plants hadn't, we hadn't had a killing frost yet. Mm-hmm. And that's without a greenhouse or a hoop house that was over these plants. And then same thing. We had this cold snap a couple of weeks ago and it was cold. We're talking like below freezing. And I was like, okay, I think it's time to go ahead and plant. I went on vacation and I just got mine planted last week. Um, and then it warmed up into the seventies. <laughs> thank, thank goodness for mulch, straw mulch. Yes. So yeah. Hopefully yeah. they're well insulated in there. Yeah. And, and if you have, I mean, we're going to, we're going to go into more detail and things like that. And I'll explain why, <laughs> or why I think, you know, or why you can wait, not necessarily why you, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but if you have planted your garlic, it's likely going to be okay. Just heavy mulch. I mean, it's going to get cold, like give mm-hmm. it, a, give it a couple of weeks, but if you have not planted your garlic, most of us still have time. I mean, you just need, just like with bulbs or anything like that, you just need to do it before the ground completely freezes. If you can dig, you can plant. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, there is a very big difference that we need to make sure we remember when it comes to the first frost and the first freeze, and then also the freezing of the ground, right? So your first frost is just something that's going to wipe out foliage and cold hardy plants are going to survive. That doesn't, that's not the cutoff for planting garlic. Even when you get killing frosts, like both mine, myself and and Mandy have experienced, and you very likely have too, if you're listening. Um, For me, when we had that a couple nights in a row, that was my indication, okay, I think I need to plant. And look, here we are, we're on the other side and it's still warm. But when those temperatures maybe get to be even daytime temperatures are hovering around freezing and your ground is going to freeze. That is your deadline. And so basically you have until now, until then, if you can still dig a spade into your soil, move that earth around with your fingers. If you can plant a clove, you're good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess this is probably a fine time. I am. So it's not necessarily, well, it kind of, I guess is science in a way, but when we plant or when you plant garlic mm-hmm. too early, like for folks that, you know, like maybe they are planting it in September or whatever, you know, it's kind of like they, the transition from summer to fall and growing garlic, typically, historically, it's best grown in fall. I do know some people in certain zones that will try and you can try, but you can plant it in the spring. You're still going to get bulbs. They're just going to be really small. Um, 
because obviously they have a long growing season and then get too hot and then they they have their their energy is forced elsewhere. Um, but when it gets so hot during the day, your your garlic can sprout, which is totally mm. fine, totally fine. But if it remains hot for an extended period of time, the the bulbs are going to put all their energy. They think that, oh my gosh, I need to grow right now. And then it's going to get really cold, but then they won't have all of that energy in the spring to, to grow big, big bulbs. So you're right. still going to get garlic. They're just going to be small. That's right. They're just going to be small bulbs, which the idea is we're trying to capture stored energy to create a bigger garlic bulb. And the way that we do that is we try to put off growing foliage as long as possible. That is why we're waiting as long as we can. Yep. Um, what types? So there's two types of garlic. I mm-hmm. mean, what do you, do you grow both types? You want to talk about that? Yeah. So there's hard neck garlic and soft neck garlic, soft neck. You can probably get both regularly at the grocery store. They're interchangeable in recipes. There's really not a big flavor difference. Mm-hmm. What the difference is, is in a soft neck variety, when you break open the bulb, a soft neck variety is pretty much going to be just all cloves, outer cloves, and then the inner cloves are tiny. And when you harvest it and you dry it, there's really no stem or woody stalk that comes out of the plant. And so you can braid it for storage. So the way I remember it, SS, soft neck storage, those are going to be your storage varieties. But when it comes to hard neck, you get these woodier stems come spring and, and early summer. And that's what you're going to get garlic scapes from. They spiral out and they create these little edible blossoms and you kind of get a double harvest. Then you not only get the garlic bulb, but before that you get to eat this little weird spiral flower and you could freeze those and use those also as a garlic supplement. The thing is they don't store as well. They have much bigger cloves traditionally speaking. And so they're a little bit easier to work with in the kitchen, but they're just not going to last as long. And so those are kind of the choices you need to make is, am I growing some for fresh eating? Am I growing some for storage? Do I want a little bit of both? And I do both. But then I learned something really interesting. There's kind of a weird gray area of garlic, which is the elephant garlic, which is my all-time favorite. It is the absolutely massive cloves. Like a recipe could call for six cloves of garlic. You just use one. Love elephant garlic. Did you know elephant garlic is actually actually more closely related to the onion? than it is to garlic. And so there was a couple years ago where myself and even a couple other growers throughout different zones were talking about how our elephant garlic didn't clove out. It kind of just created this one circular bulb. And I cannot remember what we discovered the reason was at this particular moment in time, but it's because it's related more closely to onion and the growing conditions weren't right. So it created a circular bulb because it's more closely related to the onion family, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, I did not know that. I wonder I wonder if it does that being related to closely related to onion if it does the or it did the one bulb thing because you planted in fall because typically you're planting onions in the spring. So I wonder if it the like the fertilization, I don't know, that's interesting. I did not know that. Um, I don't know, know cuz then you do still plant it in the fall. And I had planted it in, I got to look it up now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, so same here. We plant, um, like Angela said, most of the garlic that you're finding at the grocery store, you can find both, but most of it probably is 
going to be soft neck because of its long storage life. Um, I mean, you know, grocery store food is shipped from all over, so it has to have a long shelf life in order to sit on the shelf. Um, and typically you're really, really warm climates. So you can grow garlic, even if it doesn't get super duper cold. Um, you're going to probably want to not probably, you're going to want to grow a soft neck variety. Hard neck varieties are best grown. Um, again, we grow both and we get really cold. So does Angela, but mm-hmm. hard neck for folks that get like super cold, do want to grow hard neck versus soft neck? Um, which we already talked about it. You get like a bonus crop with the scape. So, mm-hmm. but it, yeah, you're correct. It doesn't store as long. So we actually grow more hard neck than soft neck, which is kind of a bum because it, do, it doesn't keep, you know, some people will have garlic um, all the way until the very next year, obviously, because that's what we're planting. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to be really particular with where you're storing it, you know, cool, dark places in your basement and stuff like that. But um, if any if any start to sprout or, or, or what have you, just dehydrate it. Permanently. That's exactly I mean, what we do. Yeah, there are so many things. I mean, it's not it's not bad. It's not going to go to waste or anything like that. I mean, I have onions sitting on our counter right now that are literally growing, growing because they sprouted in the basement. They're still fine as long as they're not yeah. soft. So same with garlic. Um, yeah. You can use them sooner. Yeah, right. Yeah. We grow hundreds. Because we eat a lot of garlic. We eat a lot. We donate some. And I grow a lot. It's one of those things where I feel like you can never have too much of it. Same with onions. So I'm very liberal liberal with the amount that I plant. Um, But yeah, just this last winter, we came out of the winter with a fairly decent amount. And the cloves were a little bit, or the bulbs were a little bit smaller. And that's why they were kind of left, just because they were the sort of the the poor selection, you know. Mm So two things, cloves and bulbs that can easily be, or somewhat easily be peeled. um, We chop those up after peeling and we turn those into dehydrated garlic pieces. But then the ones that are even smaller than that, that I still harvested, but I wouldn't want to replant and they're not really usable. I just put them in a jar. And every time I make um, vegetable broth, I throw the whole bulb in there and it just works as a a flavoring agent, right? Because I use that in my, or in my vegetable broth anyway. So now I just have like vegetable stock garlic yeah. on hand. It's um, easy. Yeah. It's, I have, yeah. I don't know. It's exciting. I think that, I think that it's one of like the easiest crops to grow, right? Totally. Same, same kind of, like you said, with onions, now onions are kind of, we're not talking about onions, but they're kind of sometimes finicky to start from seed, but you get them, you can get them as sets and, Mm-hmm. Then there you go. You got big, massive onions, but mm-hmm. you know, for people who, you know, we all, I think he kind of like the movement into wanting to grow our own food and, and so many things like that, starting with crops that are going to give you something really like literally and you do nothing to them besides plant them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's exciting. And we grow it is exciting. hundreds, hundreds. Well, and some people think of them as perennials because when you mm-hmm. harvest the plant, you take what you need and you plant it again. And yep. so it regrows, right? And so some people think of it as sort of this ongoing stock. It is stock. Yeah. yeah. That, and, but to Angela's point, so what we're talking about is like when when you harvest your garlic, then in you you keep it, you store it. And then right now we're getting ready to plant. 
So what we harvested several months ago, we use some, we store some, whatever, but you find the biggest and best bulbs and then cloves because you're not planting the whole bulb. You're planting the clove because mm-hmm. um, a clove makes a bulb. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you replant it. So it's like what you grew and then you can, you know, take apart that whole clove. You can cook with some of the bulbs. Oh, see, I got it all confused. I know it's hard. That whole clove. Yeah. You're taking that whole clove and you can use some of the bulbs that are small and then plant the big ones. You do that, don't you? You're good about saving your garlic seed. Um, pretty good. I did buy some this year because I wanted to try some new varieties. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're about 50-50, actually. I eat all of it. Really? I have never saved it. I don't want to. Because yeah, I want well, to eat the best, biggest ones, right? They're yeah, easier that for cooking. True. That's true. That is true. And it might, that might be like super generous about the 50-50. I mean, we have, I'm looking at it actually right now. It's just kind of like sitting over in bowls because I've started to kind mm-hmm. of pick it apart. Mm-hmm. Maybe 70% this year is, is stuff that we bought. But um, it's not too awful expensive. And my gosh, it is way cheaper than going and buying it at the grocery store. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in regards to your garden, it doesn't take up a lot of space. Um, well, and you can well, plant in between it because it's an yeah. excellent pest deterrent. Excellent. So excellent. I, I don't necessarily mean it doesn't take up a lot of space. You have to like, you know, space it appropriately and things like that. But um, when you are planting the fall and then you come in in the spring, we will plant usually buttercrunch and romaine right next to, right next to the garlic. I mean, like, butt up against it because it's already started to develop the root mm-hmm. you know it's already it's already kind of bulbing out we can't see it but um mm-hmm. or cloving out gosh i need to get it together cloving out well i it's think that bulbing out sounds better at least <laughs> it does sound better anyway okay um so let's backtrack a little bit we talked about why we need to wait until it you know gets pretty cold in order to plant how do you actually plant what is your process of separating and actually putting those cloves in the ground um yeah you're planting the the bulbs in the ground no planting the cloves oh yeah gosh what is wrong with me come on master gardener get it together i know um so yeah we're i mean take the cloves you get the best bulb put them in the ground Mm -hmm. um we don't really we plant all of it in raised beds I mean, mm-hmm. 99% of our garlic is raised bed anyway. Um, you want to soil with a good amount of tilth to it, right? Because just like any other root crop, if it's going to be a fluffier soil, those bulbs will be able to grow larger and really spread out. You'll have a bigger shape. If they're compacted in like a clay soil, which is what I've experienced here, trying to grow in ground, what ends up happening is it just kind of restricts the size a little bit. Yeah. It's harder for it to, to really grow. It's just like most, uh, all of your root crops, you want it to be fluffy mm-hmm. and things like that. Garlic does require full sun. So, you know, depending on what publication you read, I mean, it needs at least like six to eight hours of sun throughout the day. So spacing, or I mean, so pla- placement in your garden is just kind of keep that in mind. Um, we do know that garlic wants to be, like Angela said, in a fluffy, well-draining soil again, like most of your root crop type of type of things in like a neutral pH. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, leaning towards the acidic side, not the alkaline side, but typically, typically I would say most of our crops with a few exceptions are going to do great, um, in a neutral soil. Um, but now is the time to soil test if you, if you need to, um, yeah. because then you can amend everything. So we plant, um, pointy side up. So when you're looking at the clove, it has like a flat bottom to it. And then like your little tip where you will start to peel it, um, pointy side up. We plant ours about five ish inches apart, four to five, four to six, four is probably on the, the close side. If you're wanting to get big, um, bulbs, but you know, if you don't have a ton of space, at least if you can do four inches apart and then. I don't know, like a foot in between the rows. I personally think you probably could do closer. Um, but if you leave that space, then in the spring, you can come and interplant. Right. Yeah. As for depth, I usually push that little clove down in there about somewhere between half inch and an inch. I'm not measuring too closely. If you leave it too close to the surface and if your mulch biodegrades, over the winter time, it's going to be exposed to too much cold and freezing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to give the garlic a little bit of protection. The other thing that gives it protection is that paper. You don't want to peel off the paper oh. like you would if you're cooking. You got to leave that on there. That's its protective yeah. barrier. Little yeah, jacket. Really good point. Yeah. Yes. Somebody, I talked to somebody not too long ago, just on social media, and um, they ordered garlic, and it did not. It didn't say, "Don't peel it." So they peeled it because that's like what you do when you cook with garlic. Yeah. Um, It's probably still going to grow, but uh, it depends on the weather conditions. It it likely will rot. Sadly, if it's, if it, you know, if you get a lot of rain and snow and things like that early on, especially if your temperatures warm up, it's, it's going to rot. You know what? I told them to dig it up and cook with it (laughs) and start over. Otherwise I feel like it's a waste. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to go. They need yeah. their little papery skins. Um, the other thing that's really important is water. So if we think about climates or countries, regions of the world that are very good at growing garlic, we think of the Italians, we think of the Greeks, and those tend to be drier climates. They do need water like any other plant, but if you get them too much, they're going to rot. And so this is not a crop that you would want to inundate with moisture for the most part. If you get like a little bit of rain every week, it's really going to be enough. So it's good to interplant with things that aren't going to be too finicky when it comes to the amount of water they need. Yeah. That's also a good point when you, when it comes to spring and stuff like that, I can remember, and it again, depends on your climate and things like that. But, um, there have been years where we've planted, we've watered maybe the first couple of weeks just to give them a go. Uh, and then never again, because you get blankets of snow, which yeah. provide insulation. And I, I shouldn't say never again, but for several months, at least through the winter months and things like that. So it is nice to know that if you do get snow or, you know, a little bit of rain here or there, you don't have to be, you know, trying to drag a hose out or thawing a hose or what have you, you know, and then in the spring, we get a lot of rain typically. So. um it's like we kind of mentioned earlier, it's an easy crop to grow. Mm-hmm. It's very, I mean, it, it just truthfully is. And it, it's 
it's low maintenance, I guess I should say maybe versus easy. It's low maintenance, which is like the best kind of food to grow. You know what? To that end, here's a testament to how hands off you can be. Um, we do the great grow along. We participate in this group in the spring and sometimes the fall. We did it last spring. And um, we are very fortunate in this program that we do on social media to have sponsors. And one of them is Tractor Supply. And so I had ordered a hoop house. And so it was already, by the time we got this hoop house, we were doing the spring grow along. It was already like end of April around that time. And I put up the hoop house and the area that I decided I wanted to install it for what I was going to put in there over the summer, part of it would overlap the garlic. Well, because I hadn't grown anything else in this hoop house at the time, I wasn't watering. So in the hoop house, that garlic did not really get exposure to rain. It might have gotten some runoff because my whole garden is on a slope. So any water runoff that was absorbed into the soil and maybe trickled its way down underneath, you know, it could have been irrigated that way. But I, I purposely didn't water it because I want to know what happens if you don't water garlic. No joke. The foliage was taller than any other spot in my garden. The bulbs were bigger. So I think that what that tells me, at least in my growing zone, is overwatering is detrimental. Underwatering is not. Um, I would say that can probably hold true for a lot of crops, honestly. Yeah, you're right. Um, I, that, I mean, that, that sentence right there is just kind of powerful when it comes to gardening. Those wise words. Those are some really wise words. I think it needs to like go on a t-shirt or something. (laughs) 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 Um, Okay. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about harvesting? I know people, folks are not harvesting right now, but people can come back and reference when, when you are harvesting, when, when do you harvest? Okay. So we, I harvest, you're going to wait if you're growing hard neck until after those scapes appear, you want to see those first. And, and usually that's telling you that the majority of the plant's energy is no longer concerned with creating a nice large bulb. It's ready to go ahead and focus on creating flowers. And so when I harvest that scape, what I'm going to start to watch for is the plant to die back. Now that I've removed the flower, that foliage is going to start to turn yellow or brown, depending on the variety that you have. What gets a little tricky is some people are very religious about saying, no, 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 the plant needs to be two thirds brown and one third green. And while that's a good rule of thumb, this is the part of the year that's hot, muggy, and we have some rain if you're lucky. And those three things come together to form the perfect conditions for really warm and damp soil. And if you wait too long, what's going to end up happening is those big, beautiful bulbs that are now underneath the soil surface are going to rot. I always err on the side of caution and pull a little earlier than later. So I usually pull when I actually have one third brown, two thirds green. And I could definitely let it go longer. But for me, it's very humid in New Jersey. I would much rather take it earlier than later. Yeah. And not only are they going to potentially rot in the ground, if they don't, they're not going to store as well. Because they're exposed to those conditions. So I would say same. Usually, I mean, again, looking back at pictures, it's usually about a seven month period. Like, gosh, when you think about it, I mean, at this point I'll plant sometime in the the month of November, likely in the next probably week or two. Mm -hmm. And then it will be late and probably in the month of June when you harvest, which is kind of, you know, and also when you think about it too, that's like 
May for us is when we're planting, even sooner actually, but you want to free up that space for all those summer crops. So it's just yeah. like that. It's hard to, um, that's just another, I guess, thing to kind of keep in mind. If you're dedicating a lot of space to these things that will grow into, or you're going to be harvesting at the very um, beginning of summer, you know, you don't want to pull them too soon, but you want to free up that space. So just kind of keep that right. in mind. But okay. It is, it is one of those things that's dependent on vernalization, right? Which yeah. is the cold. And so it's not like you can just say, oh, well, you know, Mandy said I need seven months. So I'll just scoot my planting time up in September and then I'll be able to harvest in May doesn't really work that way because there is a required amount of cold and there's too much cold. So really what you're doing is you can only really shorten your growing period by pulling early. You can't really start it earlier and pull it earlier. It doesn't, it doesn't shift like that. In fact, that's why we say mulch. And I, maybe we didn't touch on that before. I use chopped straw for mulching and I do go somewhere between six, 10, sometimes even 12 inches deep. Mm-hmm. because you want to make sure to keep that covered with a nice blanket of insulation. Yeah. We use leaves most of the time, just like fallen leaves, That's good. From, you know, yeah. wild oak farms. So we yes. have huge oak trees. I mean, like so much. So, I mean, we'll just go around with um, wheelbarrow and just like pick up leaves and just take them there. Um, but yeah, that's, that's uh, another, you know, a few good points. So you harvest. Mm-hmm. I know you you're like really good about doing the braids and stuff like that I'm like nope I just like chop it all off and throw it in the basement but so I'm probably not the appropriate person to talk about you know correct um curing and storage and things like that but so I like to use this as an opportunity to channel my ancestors and really yeah. get in touch with my heritage and I like yeah. to braid my soft neck varieties and it's kind of something that's just, it, yeah, it's laborious, but it's like easy, right? You just sit down, you braid, you have a glass of wine or whatever. Um, so those soft neck varieties, I hang them in bunches to cure in my barn because it's shady there. It's obviously dry. If you can get um, like a cool component added in there, like if you already have an existing root cellar that has space, that would be a great place to just kind of let that cure. What we kind of want to do is either stagger them in bunches or hang the clothes individually. You want to allow airflow. These things have been in the ground, they're damp, and in order for them to store properly, they need to cure, which means they're trying to remove as much air and moisture or remove as much moisture by way of air as possible. So they kind of hang up until they they look dry. You know, the papery is like what you would get at a grocery store when you look at garlic paper. It's truly pretty brittle. The foliage at this point would be completely dyed back. And then if it's hard neck, I cut off the stalks and I put it into my baskets that I'm going to store it in. And then at that time, if it's soft neck is when I'll take down the clumps and I'll braid them. And I have a tutorial about how to do that on uh, Instagram. So you can see how I braid. like really pretty, but yeah, I'm definitely not the person to reach out for or reach out to for that. So don't, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, it's just like with, with like onions and stuff like that. I mean, there is a reason why it needs to cure appropriately. It's all about, you know, the longevity of how you, you, if you, if you do it appropriately, it's going to last longer. I mean. Yeah. And it's a generous curing time. I mean, absolutely. And you could use it whenever you wanted to, you go to the barn or wherever you're storing it, take it it out of the ground and use it if you want. Yeah. And take it for a meal. That doesn't mean you can't use it. What we're just trying to do is we're trying to keep in mind storage uh, durability. And so when it's hanging in the barn and again, 
my climate has a lot to do with it. New Jersey is incredibly humid. Um, I leave it in the barn to cure honestly for two to three months before I, I take it out and braid because there is just so much moisture. Maybe if I added a fan or something, I could speed that up. But I honestly, I just, I don't really care. Cause like I said, I can use it if I need it and then it's ready when it's ready. I'll braid it when I get yep. to it. Yep. I don't know. I think, um, yeah, I mean, there are several places that you can source garlic from. I guess maybe we should touch on that before we wrap up. I never recommend getting it. I mean, buy it from the grocery store and cook with it by all means. Um, but most of the time, or you just don't know if it's been sprayed or anything like that. I'm not saying it's not going to grow if you buy it from the grocery store. Yeah. You know, if that's your only option, a lot of um, places that um, sell garlic, they sell out very quickly. Um, you know, it's based off of their crop and their season and then what they're you know able to sell back to the public and things like that for their business. So if you're, if you're listening and you're like, Oh my gosh, I, I can't get garlic anywhere. And we have, a, you know, several resources we'll put in show notes about where we have sourced garlic from, but if they're sold out or, you know, what have you, um, I've gone to like a, a natural grocer or I don't know what you have in New Jersey, but that's what we have. Like in, in Missouri, it's, it's like an organic grocery store where probably yeah. kind of a better option. Or like a um, farmer's market. Farmer's market would be awesome. Yep. That'd be a really, yeah. But Mandy's not talking about spraying chemical wise, like with pesticides or something. She's talking about the reason you don't get them at a grocery store is because even if it's organic, they might be sprayed with a growth inhibitor. Mm-hmm. The growth inhibitor is going to keep those onions, like Mandy was saying, or garlic or ginger, whatever those root crops are from sprouting on the shelves because it doesn't look as appealing and then they can't sell it. Right. So, uh, if it's sprayed with a growth inhibitor and you take it home and you try to plant it in the garden, it's just going to rot because it's been sprayed with something to prevent it from growing. Hence the word growth inhibitor. Indeed. <laughs> um, so it's, yeah, it's, I mean, there, there are options, but hopefully there are still some, you know, when we, when we put the, um, the show notes out and folks, I mean, maybe there are still some, some options that, that you can, that you can plant. Cause I, I would say, 80% of the United States, at least, um, it's still an okay time to plant garlic. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, and then traditionally, if you miss this year and it just doesn't work out, you can't get any of a farmer's market, know that garlic usually goes up for sale mm. like late spring, early summer is when you're going to want to watch these vendors. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the points that we talked about today, including the vendors, are in our show notes, like Mandy said, and I'm just kind of looking through to make sure we covered everything. And I think we have that things are kind of broken down in a little bit more detail, just because this is kind of such an extensive conversation when we talk about sourcing, planting, maintaining, and then harvesting and storing. There's a lot. So if you are interested in getting a second glance at some more specific information with any of these topics, do check out the show notes. Mandy always pastes them beneath the show so this has been so fun I think I've missed this like way more than I allow myself to understand so (laughs) um (laughs) it's been great thank you all for listening um and we hope you have a great day bye 
Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Homestead Education Podcast. Any relevant material will be put in the show notes. We hope you'll share our episodes and also click that subscribe button. For more information about this podcast, you can visit us on Instagram at Homestead Education Podcast. Angela can be found online at axeandroothomestead.com and on Instagram at axeandroothomestead. Mandy can also be found online at thefarmermandy.com and on Instagram at Wild Oak Farms. We'll see you next time.